you know, there's often sometimes, oh, you know, that it's so hard and we're tough on athletes and all that. You don't go up Everest with the wrong coat on. So you shouldn't prepare for what is the biggest event in sport with the wrong preparation. And it comes at great sacrifice. Some bodies aren't capable of it. Some minds aren't capable of it. But some people are. And um, and so for me, you have to have a physical talent that can cope with a, a mass amount of work and be able to adapt to it. Because the events don't get easier, they get harder, they get faster. And so your body has to cope with how to get faster. Well, hello to you all and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. Now, the Supporting Champions podcast is all about exploring the dynamics of high performance with people who have been there and done it people who've supported others to succeed or have explored performance concepts in real depth. Now, this week's guest is Mel Marshall. As a swimmer, Mel made five Olympic finals at two Olympic Games, and she is one of the most decorated swimmers for England at the Commonwealth Games. You're likely to know Mel as much for her reputation as an elite swimmer as the coach of perhaps the most dominant swimmer on the planet at the moment, the imperious Adam Peaty. Now, Mel has coached Adam from his pre-teenage years, taking him to the top of the Olympic podium in the 100-metre breaststroke at the Rio Olympics and having devastated the 100-metre breaststroke world record, breaking it on five occasions along the way. Mel shares her tensions about what the COVID-19 crisis has taught her and how she needs to balance her energy and frustrations and when she'll switch her focus to really being on. She shares her philosophies of coaching and how these have evolved over the 12 years that she's been out of the pool and guiding others. And in a fascinating section, Mel lets us in on the four facets of what makes Adam Peaty great. How he's always had these characteristics and how it's up to her to channel this voracious, athletic and competitor talent. Well, Marsha, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Not at all. Now, Mel, how I've got to I've got to go straight into this. I can't skip this particular step. But how has lockdown been for you? Um, professionally, I've really enjoyed the challenges. I've um, liked having a bit more time to think and be creative and um, plan effectively. And you're always sometimes two spaces behind when you're in the middle of it. Whereas now I feel like I'm probably 10 steps ahead. I've tried to win each round. So when we were out of the pool, I tried to get pools into people's gardens. We got all the um, training set up at home. And, you know, every time there was a new um, set of rules, just tried to win what we could inside those rules. So um, from that side, I've enjoyed the challenge, enjoyed um, creating new platforms and meeting and communicating in different ways. Personally, I've hated it because obviously you think everything in my world, you know, is it's quite a luxurious world in the sense of what we do. We go to the best events, um, we travel, um, we work at the highest possible level at pace and all of that's kind of come crashing down. You know, no Olympics, no international competitions in Europe, potentially no competitions until next year, um, you know, and that, that's, that side of it's not been that not not been that exciting to be honest. All right, so, so it's loads in there straight away. You've got um, 
So you've enjoyed the professional aspects. You've got, uh, I love the phrase winning each round. So you're already thinking about almost little mini goals and mini wins. So you're seeing it as a challenge as opposed to kind of a overwhelming threat or anxiety and uncertainty. Yep. Um, but it sounds as though that that's offset by the contrast of missing the, the cut and thrust of what you normally do, the buzz of it. Absolutely. But that's my baggage. And that's not when I go to work, that's not baggage that I'm going to be taking to the people that I work with. You know, we've been given this difficult situation. We've been given this difficult challenge and we must rise to that challenge. Um, and, you know, there's no point moping about it. It is what it is. So, you know, of course, behind the scenes, yeah, I might be being a little bit like this is just absolute rubbish. But, you know, we've still got a job to do and still got to do the best that we can do in these circumstances. And so I guess uh, that's where I've talked about it before in lots of podcasts is that that's my character. But my personality is, you know, is grieving over what could have been the most wonderful year of my life um, in terms of professionally. But professionally, my character has made the choice. These are the cards. These are the rules. This is how it is. It sucks, but get on with it. Yeah, Okay. And so, so you're dealing with the situation, but you're not necessarily trying to let your personality override your performance by the sounds of it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if I'm not strong in that environment, if I'm not finding the positive, if I'm not making the best of the situation, then it starts to role model the behaviour for other people to start not trying to be the best in that situation. And so that's my role and responsibility at this time. Yeah. Okay. So, have you? So, give me some simple things then, because swimming is a bit in the press at the moment. Have you, have your athletes been able to swim? Have you been able to access facilities? What's what's been the level of interruption for you? Well, it's been significant. Um, you know, athletes. You know, amphibians like fish. You leave them out of water too long, it's not great news. So they've been twelve weeks out of the water, which in swimming terms just never happens. Even off the back of a four-year cycle after Olympic Games, and most you would probably let them out would be two months tops. So we're you know another third beyond that, and um, yeah, but we've tried to do a lot of the work on land. We've tried to with our best athletes, we immobilise some um, endless pools into their gardens. Um, obviously, that's like treadmills in swimming. And um, but yeah, it's been difficult and they've come back and they're actually they've picked up pretty quick and we've got access to water time because we've been allowed to return under the guidelines from the government about elite sport, being able to return to training. And British Swimming has done a really good job on all the procedures that we have to follow now. And um, so, yeah, so I mean, they've picked up quite quickly, but 12 weeks out of the water. going into an Olympic Games, which is effectively what we were, we are. Because effectively last year we would have gone world championships and then we would have gone into Olympic year. Now we've gone 12 weeks, no competitions, no training into another Olympic year. So it's um, there's a lot of things that we're going to need to learn from this time and we will need to do some things the same and some things differently. And so 12, 12 weeks out of the water... Um, now, as you say, it's not it's not the same as, say, a runner who's been able to r- continue their running, but they haven't necessarily been able to run alongside their teammates or get trackside coaching or for the football players to be interacting and playing small games and so on. Um, so, so what specifically are you being conscious of 
that's been lost for the swimmers. The swimmers, you often talk about feel for the water and so on, uh, as opposed to perhaps being able to maintain the physical strength and and that side of things. But what's what's lost there? I think there's there's three things that are lost, and that's one's physical, one's technical, and one's psychological. So when I talk about the physicality of our sport, it, it in life you you throw things, you jump, you walk. You don't naturally swim. So what we have to do is we kind of have to do a certain amount of our sport just at a low level to simulate them being like amphibians. And so that's that kind of local muscle endurance that you would get from just walking and being around your house. You don't get that. You don't swim around your house, do you? So um, that, that, that side of it certainly gets lost. And the physicality of our sport, you know, if you think that an athlete in a training session, their shoulders throughout the stroke would probably do oh, 500,000 revolutions, um, you know, and that would be twice a day. So it's, it's quite a lot of, um, you know, they're not physically doing that to go without that for that sustained amount of time. Technically, they haven't performed the skill. So they're out of practice with their skill. You can't really simulate it on land. Uh, and then psychologically, they know they've been in a regressive state. No matter how much we have tried to uphold those um, physicalities and uphold those training capacities, it's been trying to hold on to it. We've not been progressing with it because we, we know we make progress in the water. So, yeah, I think that psychologically they know that they're coming from further back. Hmm. So if um, so, maybe maybe just the yes or no answer, just in case you want to keep things close to chest here. Assuming that everybody's in the same situation globally, and that might not be the case. Certain places haven't locked down nearly as much, and I, I don't know the competitor analysis that you might, might be doing. But have you been thinking about how you can make create a jump on your competitors, given the situation, given that everybody's being challenged at at least are you starting to think how can we innovate differently from other people well we thought about that the moment that we went into lockdown so our programs that we did on land are pretty innovative the way we went about our business um and tried to hold on to those key capacities in different ways um that journey started when we started lockdown um so but ultimately what we'll we will try and do is over this period of time is um look at where we are and try and move with the accuracy and the speed and urgency that we need to move to get ourselves into a position whereby we can accelerate again. I think that's where we need to get to. And so that's being creative about training programmes, that's being realistic about how much work we've got to do uh, and the mental toughness that will be needed even more so now than ever. Um, yeah, they're the, those kind of questions. And have you got a, a different approach to next year at all, uh, assuming that the Games is going ahead? Uh, have you got a different approach? Yeah, well, some things I will keep, but I think very much it is about, it's going to need to be about one week at a time and it's going to very much need to be patient. Like I say, last year we came off a of World Championships, we're competing um, at a high level and we've you know built up momentum competitively realistically we're not going to see that kind of momentum built again until february march next year and what we've got to do is we've got to make sure that we accept that and don't let that inhibit our confidence um and we build blocks through the winter make training progression 
have more data around that progression so we can feel confident through our progression. Um, and I do think that it's about being patient. It's about being positive and it's being persistent, but accepting where we are and making progress from that point and still enjoy the journey and enjoy it more than anybody else. Because we've got plenty of time to get there. It, it's just the markers that we got to and the timeframes that we got to this year are not going to be the same next year. I love that. So patient, positive and persistent. Mm-hmm. Three Sounds P's. Like the, or three P's, but, but, but enjoy it along the way. Yeah, I mm. love that. Um, okay, so it, I think that's probably one of the things that, that bothers me, certainly for athletes that we're advising, is that actually the jump back into full training now when actually there's quite a long time to go. But being on the back foot, planning for breaks, looking for certainty through that data and that measurement that can help kind of guide you as to whether you're on track or not, uh, it's, a, it's a complete melee of, of new experiences. Are there things that you've experienced over the years, either as an athlete or as a coach, that you're drawing on here as sort of evidence about how you might go about this situation? Yeah, absolutely. Particularly in the high performance end. I talk about ego and I talk about mission. Um, You know, when you've got athletes at this stage of the four year cycle, their ego needs a lot of feeding, a lot of confidence. It's kind of like you're doing this well, we're flying, we're doing that. But actually, the mission sometimes needs critical honesty, challenging conversations and... um, You've got to get that balance right between how much does the ego need to hear good outcomes and how much does the mission need to hear honesty and truths. And I think over the next 16 to 18 months, we've got to really look at those two things. Right. What do the egos need? Well, they probably need reassurance and they probably need, you know, affirmation that they're doing a good job. And they probably need more short term goals to build confidence and get that ego um, kind of that confidence and that ego supported in different ways. But the mission still needs honesty. We have got plenty of time, but we haven't got time to afford to waste time. We have got a big scope and a big window, but we have to be realistic that we're not going to have as much enjoy, enjoyment in the first half of this process as we potentially had in the you know first half of last year's. So again, I just think it's that reminding ourselves what their egos need and also what the mission needs and making sure both are fulfilled. Okay, I like I like that, and that doesn't sound like um, something that's a new philosophy that you'd introduce. It's applying and sticking to a mantra that can guide you through this uncertain time. By the sounds of it, absolutely. And the the biggest thing is the psychological load of what's gone on over the last couple of months. Actually, it's not what they've gone through now. What they'll experience the next four months will be the reflection time and the grieving time and it'll catch up with them so that's where they're going to need more support really because you know when they're going through it, it's like oh yeah we're in the middle of this we're going to be better and but what they end up doing is a bit exhausting themselves through that process and like it's now you know next week we'd have been going to the games we'd have been leaving for the greatest show on earth you know watching those days fly by and you not being in the place that you thought you were going to be they're the they're the grieving points that take away energy credits and so i think it's about maximizing how the psychological load over the next well in any four-year cycle it's about managing that psychological load and knowing when they need support when they need challenge when they need their confidence building and when they need to be told that they are indestructible and how much 
How much does this guiding philosophy differ between how you, you're, you you've talked about the responsibility that you have to the swimmers. Um, how much does this differ from the responsibility that you have for yourself and for the wider support team in terms of self-care, but focusing on the details, managing the uncertainties? I think you've really got to know yourself in this industry. Um, and I think you've got to know what your workload capacity is, what your rest load that you need. And you've got to work out whether or not you're suited for this environment. For me, I'm on now, but I'm not, but I'm not on on. So I'm, and I don't need <laughs> is that, to be. Is that, that a Mickey Flanagan out out? I know. Yeah, well it is, but it's like at the minute, what I'm doing is, you know, I'm role modeling behaviors, I'm writing structures and I'm writing plans and I'm gathering information about when I need to attack and what I need to attack with and all that sort of stuff. When I hit September, I will be on on. But at this point now, I'm like, I'm steadying the ship. The athletes won't know, but I'm steadying the ship. I'm doing my day to day and I'm getting everything in a, in a row. But once I, once I drive on the ne- another level, I know how long I can work at that level um, and I know how long that exhausts me. And so at now, on the outside, I'm hoping people won't know, but subconsciously between me and you, I'm on, but I'm not on on. And that's how I need to be because otherwise yeah, I won't. Okay. When, it, when yeah. it comes to putting my foot down for, I've probably got a nine month foot down. Um, once that happens, that, you know, it's another level. Okay, so can I, can I ask you, then if you're not on on, but you're just on, um, what does that mean then? Do you, are you looking after yourself in a different way or you're not pushing as hard? Are you taking extra recovery time? You're taking a little bit more time to, to switch off as such. Uh, are you building up and charging the battery now um, whilst also having this professional personal split in terms of the things you're enjoying but not enjoying? Well, I do think when you're working at this level, you have to build in a baseline exercise regime anyway and a baseline, um, you know, your recovery strategy. Like, you know, I probably get told off at work, but I won't watch, I won't do my emails on a Monday and a Tuesday because I'm operational and I need a clear head and I need clear thinking and I don't need to be dealing with some of the dramas that come on an email. What I need to be doing is really focused on winning the country medals uh, and if I've got two things or three things that I know in the back of my mind that can't get fixed but they're just going to clog my thinking that's that's me operating at a silver level so it's about making those decisions about what you want your to invest your time in but like I say I have a baseline um you know how I would operate and look after myself and um make sure I'm fresh um but it's I guess the on-on is when I start pushing staff and I start pushing vision and I start pushing this needs to be done and I start saying we're going in this direction and this is the plan. Like with, you know, Adam, I've got this home team plan when he has his baby and we've periodised when he's on and when he's off and how we work out that throughout this time. Now, me being on-on, I'd be like organising the meeting, getting the parents in, getting his parents in, getting her parents in, getting her in. Um... But at this point now, I'm like, I can just wait a couple of weeks because as soon as I open that, creating that home team to support him, I know that from that point then I'm managing that situation and I'm I'm investing in it and I'm, and I'm doing it. So um, I guess it's I know what tasks I need to put my 
put my energy into, but I'm not driving them just yet. Is that the infamous Mel Marshall energy? I remember you as an athlete uh, and you would bounce about and you would be full of vim, vigour and everything was uh, approached with that, that effusive energy of, of effort and spark and enthusiasm. Yeah, I think that's what my, um, I guess my strengths are. Um, I have to be careful though, because sometimes they can appear over intimidating, unrealistic, and um, too challenging. So, um, but I think that it, that that's my strength is when I put my enthusiasm, when I put my emotion into things. Um, there's an there is another level to things, and um, that's when I operate at my best. So I guess at this point now, I'm I'm keeping my emotions under check and just. Um, doing the things I know that work. But once I push my emotions into things, that just, you know, you know, that becomes an exhaustive process. So I just need to know when I can drive those into that. So how do you know when you're becoming intimidating, overwhelming, etc.? How do you know that? Have you got a, a self-management there? Yeah, well, certainly in our environment, we do encourage feedback. Um, but I just have to keep a bit of an eye on it myself and trust that my team will give me the information because um, I do try to role model we should be able to see it say it um, if you've got an issue you know in performance sport why would you why would you not say it because there's consequences to not saying it we can't be willingly blind if we could see it we must say it and um, we should be able to take that on the chin um, so yeah I just have to I just have to be careful and I just have to check in and I have to ask questions regularly and I, also again back to that word acceptance you know I have to accept that some people you know, I, I work alongside a colleague and, and he, I would say his work drive, he's actually probably got more capacity than I have. And I think I've got a lot of capacity. Um, so it's just knowing my individual capacity and making sure that um, that doesn't adversely affect people around me. And so what's the difference between Mel the coach and Mel the swimmer? Um, some similar traits. Um, certainly my reason, a lot of my reason why are quite similar. You know, I've got a, a love for the sport. I love seeing progress. I want people to do well. Um, so, but I think, and again, I think some of the similarities, I'm, I'm determined, I'm competitive, I'm resilient. Um, I won't give up. Um, but I guess the coach in me is, um, I've learned to separate my results from my performance ECAP really taught me that. So a competition, your athlete could be having a terrible meet, but you actually as a coach could be having an excellent meet in the way that you're problem solving, in the way that you're getting the small wins, in the way that you're supporting with them, communicating with them, communicating with leadership, um, rescuing the mission, all those sort of things. And I just think that that's that I guess that's the swimmer in me that always would always would critique my performance. And now as a coach, I kind of do the same. Well, was that message relayed in the right way? What did you think about, actually, could you have influenced that better? Did you stand strong in that meeting? Did you have enough data to back your argument? Did you influence two other people in the meeting to get your point across? So um, I guess there's a lot of similarities, but as a coach, um, you know, as a swimmer, it's about you. As a coach, it's about them. And for me... 
I don't think some coaches sometimes actually ever forget that it's not about them. And I think it blindsides them. And I think that the ego override is hilarious when you watch it happen. I'm like, how on earth can you be getting this decision so wrong? Because your ego's overridden your decision-making skills. Um, But I think I'm waffling here a little bit. Why do you think that is, though? Why do you think that, that coaches can fall into that trap? Is that an ego issue where they're in coaching perhaps for their own self-oriented reasons? Or is there a simple default to judging results, therefore I've got to perform differently? I do, I do watch the ego override happen quite a lot. And so what I mean by that is your own personal agenda is completely covering the whole of your brain and you can't see any other agenda. And I just think that's when I, I feel like people are limited because it's just like, well, yes, your way is a very good way, but actually maybe your way would be outstanding if it had input and support from three other people and then you could move it on even further. Um, so, and, you know, people get stuck in the results rather than excited by the process. And I think that that's important that we should be, it's all about the process for me. The results will come if you, you know, they may not come, but they're more likely to come if you stick to the process of being a good coach and stick to a, a process of making sure the athlete is at the centre of everything that you do. And I do think if it's about you, you're in the wrong job. Totally agree. And so did you always want to coach when you were a competitive swimmer, multiple Olympian, most successful Commonwealth medalist swimmer? I think I believe that's the... One of, I think. I think it's joint now. Joint. Oh, well then, did you always have a sense of, I'm curious about the process, I'm curious about the rates of development, I'm curious that for one person this works and for another it doesn't work? Uh, did you have a sense of that? Um, I, I came into coaching actually a little bit by default really. I wanted to be a PE teacher when I was um, really young, so I'd, I'd done a lot of coaching in other sports. So that inherent part of coaching, plan, do, review, lesson plans, structure, I was quite um, quite competent in that area. And then obviously I had the inside knowledge of what, uh, you know, what it is to be performance in swimming. And so it gave me a bit of a heads up. But um, I kind of, I'd, I'd always wanted to be a coach, if that makes No, I always wanted to be a teacher and then I fell into coaching and I found that kind of, that love. But my ultimate reason why that I came into coaching was that I actually felt like I'd, um, I've been involved in something that was um, quite a significant experience and I felt like what I'd learned through that significant experience, I didn't want athletes that I cared about to actually go through that. That I felt we could do a better job. And so I came into coaching really, um, you know, my again, my ego override as in, well, I can do this better, so I'm going to give it a go. Um, so... Okay, and can I ask you what that was as an athlete then? What was that experience that made you think this could be so much better? Was that seeing untapped potential or was that the the administration, leadership, the conditions around the success or the, the, the competitive element of swimming in the early 2000s and mid-2000s? Uh, I think it was watching people... Um, make significant mistakes under pressure and being 
probably a victim of that circumstance. Not all my responsibility. Some, some is my responsibility. I'm, I'm 100% clear on that. But also there were some catastrophic mistakes made and athletes fell by the wayside. And I think that I just felt like we could do it much, much better. Um, and some of the things that were experienced throughout that period um, were very, very difficult. And it was a common theme from a lot of athletes at that time. And I just felt like we got you can get swallowed by results and expectation and that's where we need to protect the athletes and what they do from from that because it's it's still their journey it's still their dream hmm. and so you you transitioned into coaching more or less sort of straight out of your competitive career it was 2008 i believe is mm-hmm. that right you took up yep. the the post at derby yep um am i right in thinking that you were coaching Adam PT right from that moment? Yeah, about six months into that job. Um, I actually, it was a bit of a fluke, but I was in a place whereby I was full of energy and just recruiting anybody that was, you know, half, that looked like a youth athlete because I was, pro, you know, I was com- committed to proving that you could have a, a bit more of a youth senior programme at that club. And I actually met him my my mortgage advisor had a son and her son's best friend at the time was Adam. And um, there was a link across the clubs. And so he just came along one day and um, then he just started at the club, really. So, yeah, I've been coaching him. This will be our 11th year together and um, been coaching him since he was 14. And can I can I cast your mind back to that moment when you first watch him swim? What was your assessment? Well, he the biggest thing was um, he wasn't any good at any of the strokes. He was terrible. And the biggest thing was he had an incredible technical presence in the water when he swam breaststroke. But the biggest thing about him was his competitive edge. So, you know, when he was, you know, shoulder to shoulder with somebody in a race, he would just have this extra gear and he would find it from emotion. And... Um, so that was one of the biggest things. And also how quick he improved. So you gave him five sessions a week, he would get quicker by two and a half seconds. You gave him six at the right time, obviously, he would improve. You added weights, he would improve. And he's he's a physically, he's a super adapter. Psychologically, he's an absolute competitive assassin. Technically, he's, people say it's a different stroke, but if you watch the timing of the stroke, what he does is you know, technically proficient and tactically he's an animal. So all those four things that I would attribute to being world-class, technical, tactical, physical and psychological, he sits at above nine out of ten on his natural talent on all of them, really. Okay, so you you could spot a couple of those uh, early on. You say that physical presence, the competitive edge in racing. But then as you started to train him, you could start to see the response in terms of adaptation and then i presume those elements get tested as you start going up the senior ranks into international competition and i assume in a similar sort of way as the adaptation he's able to put the foot on the competitive accelerator too yeah i mean it it was it was quick at progressing i mean we haven't got that many measures i've just got the training that he could do when he was 15 and then what it went to was 16 and his competency at that point you know, we were in a club, we didn't have mass amount of testing, really. But he um, he just physically, he would like, so 
he was in the bottom lane with the three girl with the the young eleven year old girls at fourteen, and then ten days later he'd worked his way up to the top lane, and then I would say probably five weeks after that he was dominating the top lane, um, and so it's kind of like it just would once the he would just make physical progress really quickly. And have you seen any other athlete that you've trained alongside or know of around the world that, that has got a similar sort of capacity in that way? Adlington was quite like that and Jackson and probably Caitlin McClatchy. Um, just their ability to absorb a large amount of workload and make progress throughout that space um, was was really impressive. Um, just trying to think of people like David Davis, Again, when you see some of the volume that their bodies can cope with. And this is the thing now is like, you know, everyone's, you know, there's often sometimes, oh, you know, that it's so hard and we're tough on athletes and all that. And it's like, you don't go up Everest with the wrong coat on. So you shouldn't prepare for what is the biggest event in sport with the wrong preparation. And it comes at great sacrifice. Some bodies aren't capable of it. Some minds aren't capable of it, but some people are. And, um, and so for me... Um, you have to have a physical talent that can cope with a, a mass amount of work and be able to adapt to it. Because okay. the events don't get easier, they get harder, they get faster. And so your body has to cope with how to get faster. Well, you're in fairness, you're partly responsible for that. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> breaking, what is it, 11 world records? Has Adam broken something like that? Is that right? Yeah, or yeah. Is, yeah. yeah I, I've lost count. How do you... <laughs> How do you keep making sure you're raising the bar then um, when you're seeing his response to what you're putting in place? How do you make sure you're keeping raising the training bar and almost the the outcome bar as well? Well, it's back to that thing of like the technical, tactical, physical and psychological. We can always make gains in each area. So I would say physically, he's probably, you know, he's, he's nearing towards capacity with what he can cope with. But we can certainly ha- allow him to recover better, to get more quality output with small, small amount of volumes. And like psychologically, can he, you know, learn how to be more mindful throughout times when normally he might have been like on? Can he learn how to turn himself on and turn himself off more effectively technically? You know, how much more improvement can we make? Can we trim upper body mass to allow him to make time gains in his pullout? Can we um, hit 20 strokes on the first 50 in order to hit it on a full stroke rather than half a stroke? All those little intricacies, is always there's always more that you can explore. Um, and so I just think, and it's about, you don't, he's not, he's not had the best swim yet. You know, he keeps doing a PB and that happens to be a world record, but he has not had his best swim yet. There's still more in him. And so it's about finding out how we get the best out of him and what that looks like and asking the honest question, is he is he done? And he's like, no. And I'm like, he's no. He's still got another half a second in him, in my opinion. Okay, so that's interesting then from a perfectionist point of view. Is that is that your lens looking through that to say, that no, there are changes there that could be made or that wasn't quite perfect, whether it was the cruising speed or whether it was the start or whether it was the turn or all those intricacies that you can see. I, I don't enjoy watching sport a lot of the time because I can see the the potential and how it could be better. And that's, I suppose, just a burden that I bear. Um, is that what 
is that your version of events or effectively at some point you're going to have to draw a line under it of that was that was the best swim that I can produce in my career and I'm done in that sense yeah and I think you know when you arrive at that time when you've worked with athletes for a sustained amount of time and you've had the data around you you can start to see that and then that's your responsibility as a coach is to be honest around that um and then look at you know try and look at things differently so I know with Adam I know there's there's more in him when I know there's no more the story will be different and also as well if I think there's no more but he thinks there is more then we've got to try harder and do it different do things differently so um I just think it's about knowing your athletes exploring the next level and I do think there's always ways you can get better if you're willing to try or if you're of an age whereby you can you can try do you have reflections yourself in terms of thinking what what Adam has experienced or gone through do you ever contrast his experience and his career with your own yeah well I've I did um some reflections for a book actually which is was quite a pre, um an interesting story um I do I do think that um you know when I look at the things that I went through with him on my coaching journey and some of the reasons why we got to where we got to you know when I write all those down it's you know people will say you have a talented athlete and I absolutely have a talented athlete but if I wasn't good at what I I'm good at it might have been a bronze but it's like almost like the not the perfect combination but it's a it's it's I match his talent and he matches my talent and so I think that's why we've got to the best that we've we've been able to get to so but I look at some of the things that I did from a um from a leadership point of view in that program I look at some of the kids that have come out of there you know triathletes you know, even if they didn't go on their swimming route, they, you know, they're, they're triathletes in the British swimming, in the British program, or they went off to the states on scholarships, or they're Paralympic bronze medalists, or they are now um, just in, still enjoying swimming. And so, I just think that particular group of kids that I brought through, there's too many good things that have gone on in there for that to have been just a fluke, I think. But maybe that's my ego talking. No, well, how much has your coaching evolved in that way then? So if you're contrasting athlete to, to coach, called contrasting your own experiences to Adam's experiences, what was what was Mel coaching like in 2009, say, a year into your coaching versus yeah, a decade on now? Well, different and some bits I wish I could keep. Um and do you know the one thing that I really miss is the naivety. So when I was, you know, a 26-year-old young coach, I was so naive in the sense of, yeah, we're all going to the moon and we're going now and I'm going to push and push and push and let's see where we get. And, you know, when you're 38, that energy is not the same. And when you see how many people perhaps don't get to the level that you'd aspired for, then you, you start to get a bit more, more realistic. But that naivety and that... um belief that was the thing that I think got the results that I got out of that small program because I you know I believed we could do it and I took everybody on board and we worked hard and we played hard and I think that was the the kind of philosophy and some of that I keep now I want the athletes to have fun I want them to enjoy the journey and I want them but also an acceptance of this is this is not a journey for everybody as in this is hard when you get to this level and you're tired for 
nearly over three quarters of the year and every time you go to the toilet it hurts because you've done squats and every time you walk up the stairs it's um agony because you've got doms and your eyes are so tired but you can't sleep because your brain's so stimulated it's it's really really hard but um I'm still the same I'm still the same I've still got the same passion as when I started and I still got the same love for what I do and the drive to get the best out of the athletes and do the very best that I can that's not changed but I think I'm probably better now at knowing when I need to information gather and make a decision and wait five days and knowing when I need to have action and make a decision straight away. Um, Try not to get too emotional about when people can't live up to the standards or it's taking them longer to change their behaviours or um, not. Empathy is my compass, which is a real dangerous territory because you have to go down into those emotions to kind of work out how people feel and how to get them... Uh, to make progress and empathy being your compass is a, a real big skill but it's it's really tiring so I guess I'm different now because I've got more skills and I've got a wider range of um, things in my toolbox that I can draw upon but I miss I miss the young naive coach too the one that didn't really give a crap about anybody's opinion so you're at Everest base camp at 26 thinking yeah woohoo let's all go let's do it let's fight let's go let's, let's chase up there let's go rollerblading up Everest yeah whereas now you're like whoa hang on a minute we can get to Everest but this this and this you need to be aware of this it's going to hurt at this point so you've got some of those battle scars of having ascended the mountain by the sounds of it yeah but also as well when you're working at a club level most people can get to base camp when you get to base camp, not everyone can get to Everest. And that's the world we work in now. You know, you hear club coaches saying, oh, we did a good job at junior level and then they haven't converted. It's like, well, it's not the same because if you look at the junior team, four of them will make it out of there. And that's just the circumstance of the next level being much more difficult. So, um, yeah, and I find that difficult because I want, ultimately, when I was travelling with my club up to base camp, I loved that because... You know, the little Diddy League team would do well and you'd feel good about it. And then the um, Arena League would do well and you'd feel good about it. And then there was a couple of good age group kids and there was just a bigger pot of things that were making progress. When you're going up Everest, unfortunately, sometimes you've got to cut the rope on people. Fortunately, some people just don't make it. Unfortunately, some people get frostbite, lose their feet. It's and not that many summit. And so a lot of the time you're surrounded by a lot of the challenges that are really hard for people that have invested their lives in this sport. And so that's a much more difficult journey and careful journey um, that needs to be planned out and mapped out. And can I ask you about the relationship you've cultured with, with Adam over the years? How's that, how has that changed? Because it sounds to me as though you, you have found a match in terms of your mindset, your, your relationship, your soulful connection. Tell me about the relationship and how it's evolved. Um, I call it front side and back leadership. So I feel like when he was younger, I was at the front of him. Look, we're going this way. We're going to do this. I believe in you. Let's go. And when he gets a bit more competent, a bit more experienced, it's more side leadership. Like, I think we should go this way. You up for it? More questions. And now it's about him being in front, or at least perceiving he's in front, and me kind of controlling the things from the back so that it's, it's him driving it, it's his journey, and he's completely in control of it and empowered by it. And um, and that's where I would say my role has changed. You know, our relationship over time, I must admit, and this sounds pretty corny, but of all the things that I've achieved in my, well, not all the things, but of the few things that I've achieved in my coaching career, 
our relationship is probably one of the things I'm most proud of just because it has weathered a lot of storms. It's got honesty in it. It's not got blame in it. And, um, you know, we've had our difficult patches whereby things have just felt tense for no reason because, you know, expectations, me changing, different roles. Um, But what we've found through that is through conversation and constant conversation is we've always found a way together. Um, And I'll tell you a very quick story, actually, is when that relationship came to power, we went to a competition and um, we'd just come off camp and we'd had this probably one of the best conversations we'd had. It was on a sun lounger in in, um, Tenerife and, you know, I'd, I'd shared with him some pretty important things in my world um and he'd shared some pretty important things with me in his in his world and we'd found this kind of new level and he went to this competition and he said I'm okay in the morning but it was just a bit flat and so I just drawed upon this conversation that we'd had and I made it very personal about um you know what the swim in the afternoon meant and I mean he dropped a time that he never ever should have done but it was just uh, I just I called it I coached the I coached the shit out of his emotions and um, <laughs> and and it just went on another level. And that's the power of um, where our relationship can go to. And um, not necessarily, but when we get it right and, it, and we have that connection and we have that, um, I know how to work him and I can send him on another level and he appreciates that and he knows I'm on his team and we go on, we, he can go on again and just from nowhere. So, love that. So, and what was going on in your head where you thought, actually, m- maybe I should try an experiment with using that as part of the, of the priming conversation? It's a bit of an instinct. I've got that's the thing I've got with him because I know him so well. Probably know him better than he knows himself in a lot of ways. I'm just waiting for him to work himself out and giving him space and opportunity and platform to have conversations so he can work himself out. And also the space to make mistakes, which he will do and in the position that he's in and, you know, just be human. Um, But I just think, I just, I know. I know when he needs that little whisper in the ear and I know what it is I need to say. And I wouldn't ever repeat it to anybody else but I know what gets him knocked off, as in, like, gets him angry. And he needs that. And then he needs the, right, channel that and send it where you need to send it. And he just, he'll just, he's like, I don't know, it's like giving the apple to the horse before it goes and he just takes off. And and how might, you said there that people have, uh, I presume, flippant comments about, oh, well, you've got a talented athlete. Clearly you have, but there's one thing having a talented athlete and there's one thing handling that talent and... And setting the the ultimately the standards that you you have done, and how mindful are you in terms of being able to replicate that and spot other talented swimmers in the future and being able to replicate that, but also flex your style, which where ultimately you might not necessarily be able to use the same methods or style or relationship that you've cultured with Adam. Well, that's where you that's that's coaching. So if I look at my relationship with Adam, it's very different to my relationship with Luke. You know, Luke likes data, he doesn't like overbearing banter and he doesn't like in-your-face kind of communication. And it's about knowing your athletes. And like I say, I mean, um, Insights really taught me that, as in the the vast range of people that you've got and how they interpret information and how they respond best. And so, like I've worked out the formula with Adam and it's probably a much more natural way of me working, I have to work out the formula with other people and, and make my 
that my natural way of working with them. Um, and so it's just about knowing your athletes and getting to know what makes them tick and asking them a lot of questions and really exploring what's going on for them and gather as much information as you can on them to, again, you've got a series of keys that can unlock boxes that they didn't know they could unlock. And also they need to learn to find their own keys and unlock boxes. So you're only one part of the journey, but, um, yeah, I just think it's about expanding your skill set, getting to know your athletes and working out what works for them. And it's not, I'm not, um, one style of coach. I am a coach for one person and a coach for another. And then the key thing in that is how do you remain your, you know, how do you keep your authenticity when you're trying to be 25 different versions of yourself? And so... Sounds like a very flexible, adaptable way, as opposed to perhaps what would be a traditional, this is me, this is my philosophy, this is the instructions you're going to get, this is this is the uh, old-fashioned coach that just basically rolls it out, as opposed to more nuanced, more subtle, and you've mentioned emotion several times. Yeah, I think it's... It's different ways of doing things. This is my way of doing things where I like to be flexible and adaptable and try and work out the, you know, everyone that walks through your door has got a different background, different physiology, different psychology, different stories, different training journey, different competition journey. And it's your job as a coach to gather all as much information as you can and try and create something that's going to, a prescription that's going to work best for them. But also sometimes... I wish I was a bit more direct. We're going this way. If you don't like it, sod off. Because that also works as well and that works quickly. And But that also has casualties. And so I think, I actually think in this day and age, with the culture that we work in now and where, you know, athletes are, I, I think that can be sometimes a bit dangerous. So, but... Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. But <clears throat> it also can get results. So... Yeah, I think there's that. I mean, certainly there was a phrase of that in in swimming in the early 2000s where just the bar just went up. This is the way, this is the standard that needs to be met. And not not many people liked it, but a lot of people stepped up at the same time. Uh, And I do some work for other other systems now where actually it it is just driving hard and cutting the wheat from the chaff. And those that respond are the ones that do. But I suppose certainly in the UK we don't have the the talent pool to be that brutal you've got to be a bit more uh, sophisticated and that means flexible styles of working it's the it's the that and so it's the ability to challenge and the ability to be compassionate and that's what we didn't get right in 2004 we had the ability to challenge but we didn't have the flex the other way and that's why it didn't work and so that's i guess where my coaching philosophies evolved from is absolutely we need to challenge but we also need to know when we need to offer support and compassion. And I think it's that blend that you need to get right. Otherwise, you either have casualties or you have complaints or you have um, a whole load of paperwork that you don't really need. <laughs> if if uh, philosophy can come from avoiding paperwork, it's got to be a good one. Uh, not with COVID, though, is it? It's paperwork central. <laughs> so if, you, if we're going to stretch our minds in the future... Uh, you've lost your naivety from your 2008-2009 self. What, what will Mel Marshall in 10 years, 10, 11 years time look, be like as a coach? 
I think the the beauty of going on the journey that I've gone on with somebody of that level is you really go through every, every sort of thing that you experience in sport. You know, the the media, the managing, the, the pressure of, you know, you can't fall down and the expectation that comes with somebody like that. You really go on that journey. And, and I often think to myself, I'm really looking forward to the next time because you're experienced and I think that's the big thing for me now is I have convic- I, you know, I have confidence in my convictions and I, I'm not, not unsure where we're going and I'm not, not unsure with my decisions, but I'm living them all for the first time because we're doing something that's nobody ever, nobody's ever done. Whereas I feel like when I go through it the next time, it'll be a much less emotionally stressful experience because I'll, I'll have such a, a breadth of knowledge to... Um, to draw upon and and with that next generation that I've got coming through now it often it just doesn't feel as stressful and even if they were in a position whereby they were destined to to win I wouldn't find it as stressful as I've found this one because ultimately um, you know you've done it before whereas this one it's like I haven't done it before we're doing something new every time and also you know I've worked with him since a little boy he's 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 my little lad, do you know what I mean? He's, he's half parent in me as half coach because, you know, I've I've worked with him so closely and I've invested so much of my time in him and, you know, away from the pool as well. Like, you know, we've done loads of stuff like charity events and cycled across Africa together and, you know, I've taken him to college because he didn't have a lift. I bought him his first car, you know, all that sort of stuff. It just really helped him out as, a, as if he was my little boy, do you know what I mean? So there's that side of it that's it's a lot more heightened for me at this point. Whereas when they come in a bit older, you don't have the same, of course you're attached to them and I really want them to do well and I love them to bits, but um, it's just, it's not been so long. So it's not quite as sensitive. I can hear the wisdom in your voice of, uh, of being able to say to the next generation, look, it's going to be okay. You know, and that sense of reassurance mainly because you've not just gone up it as an athlete, the, the mountain, you've gone up as a, as a coach as, as well, being able to pass that, that wisdom on. As you say, that, that rarity of how people respond right at the top of the mountain, that performing under pressure, it sounds like you're really creating uh, a different type of conversation. You're communicating with a different voice that actually rather than just saying, I'm this, this absolutely invulnerable coach, look at me, Actually, you're saying I haven't got it all worked out. <laughs> um, let's can you can you have an input? You're consultative and and uh, and empathic in that sense. Yeah, I think that's definitely the thing, and it's um, it's like when you're approaching new territory. If you're not seeking counsel and you're not asking questions regularly, then you are heading for a fail. But I just think that it, I can't ever lose sight of to get up that mountain. It's so hard. And not everybody's going to make it, but I'm always proud that they've given it a go. And I just hope that we don't get frostbite and we lose a couple of limbs and I don't. I hope we don't have to cut the rope. And me as a coach, it's really hard because, you know, when those ropes do get cut sometimes because, or they do get frostbite, you feel responsible. And I think because I was an athlete, I feel even more responsible. And I'm looking forward to a few more years in coaching because I feel like I'll feel less of that responsibility because I... I know what it felt like as an athlete to, if you don't get funding or you come forth or you're not making the relay team. I know what all those feelings and how hard they are to experience when you've invested, you know, all your time in what you're doing. 
Um, so, and I really struggle. I hate giving those messages. They're not easy, you know. Um, but, I, you know, I know how hard it is up top. It's not easy. And not not many make it. And I, that's really difficult. Last question for me then, Mel. What was your favourite day as an athlete? The day when I walked away. And I don't mean that because... Mm. That's a great question. I don't mean that because I was walking away, but I had no regrets and I knew it was my time. And that was a nice feeling. Um, I'd enjoyed the whole of the journey, the highs, the lows, the wins, the losses. I'd felt like I'd become a much better person through sport. I'd lived an amazing life and I knew what I wanted to do next. And I had zero regret, regrets, zero. Even if you ask me now, would I be an Olympic champion? And that mean that I wouldn't have known what I've known through that experience to help Adam become Olympic champion. No way. I would have lived through that experience over again, over again. And I don't blame anyone. It was no one's fault. Everyone was trying their best. Um, but I had no regrets. So the day I walked away, um, knowing that, that was, that to me was a successful journey. Loved it. Love that. Mel, I love talking to you. Fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing your philosophies. I've really enjoyed listening to how you've you've understood the process you've gone through and, and how you're thinking, but you're balancing that logical side of your brain, but with the, the emotions and the empathy and the subtlety of, of creating performance. And congratulations on everything you've, or you've achieved, but also we're looking forward to seeing what's next. So we're wishing you well for the next uh, next year, big year, and uh, and onward. Thanks very much, boss. We couldn't be boss for. <laughs> now you can follow Mel on Twitter at Massive Mel. You can follow us on Twitter at Support underscore Champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. Check out our LinkedIn page www.linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash supporting hyphen champions. Yeah.